This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, April 3rd. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Daniel Davis. Casey Diaz was once a person you wouldn't want to meet. He lived as a gangbanger during his teenage years, but everything changed when he got arrested. He went to prison where he found God and began a new life. Today, he'll join us in studio to share his story. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a review or a five-star rating on iTunes and please subscribe. Now, on to our top news. Well, until recently, President Trump was full speed ahead on pushing forward a Republican health care proposal. But on Monday, he backed off, saying any health care proposal will have to wait until after the 2020 election. He tweeted, quote, the Republicans are developing a really great health care plan with far lower premiums, cost and deductibles than Obamacare. In other words, it will be far less expensive and much more usable than Obamacare. Vote will be taken right after the election when Republicans hold the Senate and win back the House. It will be truly great health care that will work for America, end quote. Well, hitting the pause button on health care allows the president to wait for an Obamacare legal challenge to make its way through the courts. That law was ruled unconstitutional back in December by a federal judge in Texas. 17 states have now appealed the ruling. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said the White House economists were beginning to look into what it would mean for the country if the border with Mexico was closed, per The Hill, which also reported that Sanders denied there was any particular timeline for the possible border closing. Here's what else Sanders said about the border via CBS. Look, Democrats are leaving us absolutely no choice at this point. We've already had to move roughly 750 personnel from ports of entry uh, at this point, and it looks like we're going to have to move more, which will force those lines to go longer to cross the border, and eventually it may be that it's the best decision that we close the border. Uh, Certainly we don't want to see, this isn't our first choice. Our first choice would be for Democrats to actually sit down with us and help fix a broken system to address the national security and humanitarian crisis that exists at our border, uh, we're at a breaking point and they have left the president absolutely no choice. Well, Democrats don't seem ready to bail on Joe Biden, but they're definitely putting out some warning signals. Biden, who hasn't yet declared a run for president, has recently been accused by two women of unwanted touching, though not overtly sexual in nature. He says he never acted inappropriately, but that he's listening respectfully. But in light of the recent Me Too controversies, it's causing some to ask where the line is and whether or not he's disqualified. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says he's not disqualified for president. In a Politico interview Tuesday, she said, quote, He has to understand in the world that we're in now that people's space is important to them. And what's important is how they receive it and not necessarily how you intended it, end quote. Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin sounded a similar note, telling Politico, There's a failure to understand how one's actions impact others. And Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono also told Politico, quote, The focus isn't on what his intentions were. It is how his behavior is experienced, and one should not invade personal space. He needs to be a lot more aware of that. I would say with Trump, it's many, many degrees of worseness, if there is such a word, end quote. House Republicans want to protect babies born alive after abortion, and on Tuesday they launched a discharge petition effort. If they get enough signatures, they could force a vote on the House floor, even without House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's permission. Here's a video House Republicans made featuring Whip Steve Scalise, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Representatives Ann Wagner and Liz Cheney. 
It shouldn't even be a debate. Allowing a baby who was born alive during an attempted abortion to be killed outside the womb should be illegal in every single state in America. I have a bill that would do just that, end the horrifying practice of infanticide. This shouldn't be partisan. We are using every legislative tool at our disposal to end infanticide and get these children the medical care they deserve. Day after day, Republicans have asked for an up or down vote more than 20 times now. And every single time, Democrats have blocked it. Enough is enough. It's amazing to me as a mom, as a member of this House of Representatives, that we even have to have this argument, have to have this debate. Here's the bottom line. You deserve to know where your member of Congress stands on infanticide. That's why I filed a discharge petition, a procedural tool that with 218 signatures from members of Congress will force Nancy Pelosi to finally schedule a vote and make everyone go on record to tell the American people whether or not they support this barbaric practice. Well, the president on Monday unleashed on Puerto Rican officials after two separate disaster spending bills failed to pass the Senate. Republicans and Democrats each had their own bill and each blocked the other's bill. Democrats wanted to release funds already appropriated for disaster recovery in Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Irma. But Republicans objected, saying Puerto Rico had already received more money than other states and that officials there hadn't spent the money wisely. The president tweeted, The people of Puerto Rico are great, but the politicians are incompetent and corrupt. Puerto Rico got far more money than Texas and Florida combined, yet their government can't do anything right. The place is a mess. Nothing works. FEMA and the military worked emergency miracles. But politicians like the crazed and incompetent mayor of San Juan have done such a poor job of bringing the island back to health. Democrat senators, including Senators Tim Kaine of Virginia and Michael Bennett of Colorado, have introduced new legislation to expand government-controlled health care options. The Medicare X proposal would allow people in counties with few insurance options in the Obamacare exchanges to choose to use Medicare instead, even if they're too young, and eventually would be available to all areas. It also would increase funding for government-controlled health care, adding subsidies for those who make more than 400% of the federal poverty level and who are currently not eligible for subsidies. The chairman of the North Carolina GOP and a major donor have been indicted on federal bribery and fraud charges in a case that was unsealed Tuesday. Chairman Robin Hayes and Greg Lindbergh, the founder and chairman of Eli Global LLC and the owner of Global Bankers Insurance Group, were two of the four individuals listed in the indictments. They're accused of trying to persuade an insurance regulator to make decisions in favor of the donor's insurance companies. Federal prosecutors say the four individuals promised or gave millions of dollars to Republican Insurance Commissioner Mike Causey to get him to do things that Lindbergh wanted. Hayes, the state GOP chairman, served in Congress from 1999 to 2000. Next up, we'll speak to Casey Diaz, who joined a gang in the L.A. area when he was younger and then, in prison, found a different path. Do you own an Alexa? You can now get the Daily Signal podcast every day as part of your daily flash briefing. It's easy to do. Just open up your Alexa app, go to settings, and select flash briefing. From there, you can search for the Daily Signal podcast and add it to your flash briefing so you can stay up to date with the top news of the day that the liberal media isn't covering. 
We're joined today by Casey Diaz, the author of the new book, The Shot Caller, A Latino Gangbanger's Miraculous Escape from a Life of Violence to a New Life in Christ. Casey, let's start from the beginning. Can you tell us about growing up and how you ended up joining a gang when you were 11? So um, uh, I was brought here by my parents uh, when I was two years old. Um, our uh, family comes from El Salvador, and they came in here legally. Um, but unfortunately, we landed in an area uh, which is called uh, the Rampart District of Los Angeles. And some of you might know, uh, you know, with reference to the Rampart scandal that made the news. So that's the area I grew up in. And um, my mom was a seamstress. Uh, so she would get up early in the morning, four in the morning, and wow. go out to work. And I wouldn't get to see her till about 10, 11 o'clock at night. And my father, on the other hand, uh, was very just uh, alcoholic, abusive, um, physically and uh, vocally or verbally. And uh, so here comes my mom from, you know, pulling two shifts uh, to getting uh, attacked physically by my father. So violence started very early in, in my house, in, in our apartment. And then at the age of eight, I witnessed a uh, thrip, uh, triple uh, murder uh, right before my eyes um, in L.A., uh, in these older buildings, they have fire escapes, mm -hmm. uh, kind of like the ones in New York. And um, I would be, uh, I would go outside. We lived on the third floor, and I'd kind of sit there and uh, dangle my feet from the fire escape. And that was kind of like my routine as a kid. And on this particular uh, day, it was broad daytime uh, daylight, and the car pulled uh, to the side. Uh, three uh, males were walking up an alley, and the guy driving uh, simply gets out of his car, doesn't run doesn't scream anything, just walks up to these three guys and uh, puts bullets in each and every single one of them. And then uh, once he's done with the bullets, he reloads. So he takes out the, uh, you know, takes out the shells and then reloads and finishes uh, his execution of, of three guys in, in that alley. So I was there watching the whole thing. And so you got violence in, in the apartment, and then you got violence outside. So wait, what happened right after you saw? I mean, I can't even imagine being eight and seeing this. Did you go inside? Did you cry? How did I you didn't. And, and that was a surprising thing. Uh, I, I remember I just, I kind of looked at, you know, I, I remember seeing one of them yell. Uh, he was actually yelling uh, um, uh, for his mother. And uh, he was holding his, his uh, abdomen, and uh, he was under a carport. Uh, he he kind of struggled his way to try to get away. Mm -hmm. uh, but he fell uh, a few steps under a carport. So, so there they are, and um, and uh, you know, I, I, you kind of get desensitized in a way because you're just seeing brutality. And uh, as a kid, you kind of look at that incident and what's going on in the home, and you go, "Well, I guess this is how you handle matters when uh, somebody steps over you." Um, and so that that's uh, you know, and then at eleven, I get introduced to, to this local gang and um i found a gang leader that just uh took me under his wing very uh, popular guy and uh he, he was very violent himself um so i got uh introduced to the gang jumped into the gang and um and then normally what happens is you end up having an assignment and uh that would mean it could be anything from a robbery to uh, you know up to a murder to anything and because i was with him uh, he took me to an area of uh, where rival gang members were at, uh, to, uh, specifically to uh, 18th Street, and where we captured one of them. Uh, we beat him, and uh, he did most of the, the work, and uh, he uh, stabbed him. He stabbed him, and then uh, when he was uh, 
finished stabbing him, he kind of just gave me the screwdriver and said, uh, now it's your turn. And so my first stabbing was at 11 years old as well. Wow. So so five years you were in a gang from 11 to 16. 16. So yes. what was it like during those later <clears throat> years? What kind of stuff were you involved in? Um, many robberies, um, uh, you know, break-ins of homes. Uh, uh, but more than anything else, it was uh, just the violence was what drove me. Um, you know, I explained my story. In, in many ways, uh, there's different rankings within the, every gang, uh, especially the ones that are organized. You have the guys that are just kind of, you know, drinking beer at a liquor store. and They're, they're harmful, but they're not doing really anything. Um, they like to play the part more than anything else. They like the parties. And then you have the gang leaders or the potential gang leaders that are out there and what we call putting in work. And that meant going out there and looking for rivals. So um, for me, uh, it was very easy. It became very easy at that age to, um, you know, my preference was, was the violence. So I went out there and always looked for uh, rival gang members. Yeah, so mostly against other gangs? Yeah, mostly uh, against other gangs. Um, you know, throughout uh, Los Angeles. And, uh, yeah, it just became a pattern to the point where I really couldn't sleep unless I went out there and um, and did something. And uh, I didn't like the drive-by shooting thing. Um, unfortunately, I was more uh, of a hands-on guy. And so uh, uh, stabbing was what I preferred to do with uh, these guys. And so what besides the violence do you think attracted you to life within the gang? What did you enjoy? Um, it gave me a false sense of family of belonging, of, um, of being, um, respected, of being, uh, validated by them and, you know, not having a father figure or a mentor at that young age. Um, the streets, uh, has a habit of, uh, embracing you very quickly in that, in that, uh, in the, in those times of, you know, where you need to be told, you know, what's a good direction to take. So unfortunately I, I ended up in, in this kind of lifestyle. So you were 16 when you were arrested. Um, tell us how that happened. Um, uh, in this particular uh, day, um, you know, back in uh, in the 80s, uh, you were able to drive uh, trucks and you were able to uh, hang out in the back of, uh, of the truck. Uh, no seatbelts were required or anything like that. It was not against the law. Wild time. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a wild time. And I happened to be in a, at a little uh, burger uh, joint um, when I was uh, um some uh, some members of the 18th Street Gang came by. They recognized me, and uh, a fight ensued inside the, the little burger joint. And uh, I ran to the vehicle that I was outside, and uh, unfortunately I ended up uh, uh, killing uh, the guy that was uh, the first guy that approached me. So were police on the scene? Were they, did they arrest you then? Uh, no, I was uh, a fugitive for 21 days after that. Um, so I, I ended up living in abandoned apartment buildings, uh, construction sites, uh, one of the moms from one of my gang members, uh, she uh, took me in for a, a few days, and uh, I was just trying to keep a low profile. I kind of disappeared for a minute, and then uh, I got captured uh, by the Los Angeles Police uh, Crash Unit. That's their uh, gang uh, uh, special unit. And was the guy uh, whose life you took, was he a gang member of a rival gang, or what did you have? He was one of the leaders of 18th Street at that at that time uh, from a, a, um, a clique called Colombia which that was the headquarters of 18th Street in Los Angeles. And that was a rival gang to yours? Well, so— I'm not very familiar with yeah. the gang world, so—, <laughs> so <laughs> That's good. Um, uh, 18th Street was uh, a, a gang that we used to uh, get along with. 
we had, you know, fathers, sisters, brothers that were in the same gang, you know, and um, I never liked them. So uh, I was the one that um, called the shot to uh, go against them. And uh, I didn't like them. I didn't like what how they did business out there. And I'm young, but violence was just, you know, my thing. And so I was the one that uh, made that decision to go against them and to take over their territory, and which we ended up doing eventually. Um, and it made big news because a lot of us from my gang, uh, uh, unfortunately, again, uh, it, it it was a lot of uh, a spilling of blood um, throughout the streets of L.A. So what was your trial like, and how did you feel when you heard your sentence? Um, I didn't I didn't really care. I mean, I, there was no, um, you know, uh, that's what's expected of you. That's what, you know, you, you really don't, <laughs> I don't know of a gang member that journals and, you know, says, uh, hey, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Uh, no, we all had the mentality, and everybody was trying to updo the other person. So every gang leader in, in these gangs were just trying to, you know, if you're going to do, you know, three murders, we're going to do four type of deal. And then the bloodshed in Los Angeles in the 80s, I mean, you, you see the reports from back then, and it was vicious. It was, it was a, lot of, uh, a lot of violence. So what was prison like for you? I believe you said you were in solitary confinement. Uh, yeah, so um, uh, I ended up, um, uh, CDC has this point system from 1 to 100. And so the higher you score, the more security level that is needed for you. And at that time, I don't know how they do it now, um, but at that time, the, the higher you scored, more security. So I ended up going over there with 97 points, uh, which meant uh, going to the shoe program from the bus to the shoe, uh, no questions asked, and to serve a undetermined uh, sentence, meaning I, I have to finish my whole sentence in, in solitary. Uh, so, you know, I, I was prepared for that. I didn't care. Uh, I was just, uh, you know, my first meal in New Folsom was served by the Hillside Strangler. Uh, so these are the guys that, you know, that we heard in the news and I live with most of them. The uh, Menendez brothers, one of the guys who, from, the, from oh, that yeah, the ones bunch who of, killed their parents. Right? Yeah. Uh, uh, he was there uh, in the A-yard. Uh, so, you know, you're surrounded by nothing but um, like, like-minded like people, you know. And um, so you really don't care about your actions. You you really don't. And uh, it was on my third year of solitary confinement where um, uh, a little church from uh, uh, this, this little Baptist church uh, came. And uh, a little lady, a little black lady uh, by the name of Frances Proctor, uh, she uh, was very, very bold and uh, requested to approach my cell. And you, you got to understand that in the shoe, you know, you got Pelican Bay, you have the Corcoran shoe, which made the news big time, and you have New Folsom. Those are the three major uh, prisons to go to in California. So if you're uh, any of, if there's any influence in you, uh, this would be like your Harvard, Yale, and Penn <laughs> State, you know, the, in the street uh, world. And so uh, here we are in... Um, this, here's this lady coming into one of the most darkest places in, in, in the prison. And she is so bold with this correctional officer and who, by the way, the, the CO is telling her, you really don't want nothing to do with him, you know? And I didn't know that they were talking about me um, until the very last approach uh, with her is, you know, you know, Jesus came for everybody. Can I have permission to approach a cell? And uh, she was granted the permission to do that. And the guard said, uh, that's Diaz in there. You're wasting your time. 
that's when I knew that it was me. And uh, she approached, and she asked me a, a very, uh, you know, vibrant question. She said, how are you doing? And she had a very, uh, you know, south, southern uh, accent. She said, how are you doing? And she was, she was just being her. And um, I said, uh, couldn't be any better. And uh, she said, oh, that's a pretty stupid question. I said, that's all right. And she invited me to this Bible study thing, to listen to this Bible study. And I told her, I was very respectful, and I just said, you know, I'm not interested. Um, thank you, but no, thank you. And she said something uh, after that that was very, uh, that caught my attention. She said, I'm going to put you on my hit list. You know, that's so, that's a word that, that you might not want to use in, in solitary confinement. Yeah. And she says, uh, I'm going to pray for you. You're going to be on my prayer hit list. And Jesus is going to use you. And uh, I thought, you know, at first glance uh, at that answer, at that, you know, <laughs> at that statement, I thought, this lady's crazy. You know, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She doesn't know where she's at. And, uh, and then she asked for my permission if she could, you know, they came once a month, if she could approach my cell and just say hi to me and pray for me. I said, you, you can do whatever you want. I'm just letting you know that uh, I'm not joining your Bible study. And um, so this continued for over a year and a few months where she was just consistent to stop at my cell. And she would always end the conversation with, I'm praying for you and Jesus is going to use you. And I had an experience in that cell that um, that uh, challenged me in my life uh, to change. And it was very real, very raw. And uh, I had a moment, an encounter with Christ in there in which uh, I had to make a decision whether I would continue in this organized uh, crime life, you know, a life of crime, or I was going to make that change. And I knew that what I had experienced in that cell, in that 8 by 10 cell, was authentic. It was real. It brought me to my knees. I had never heard the gospel. I had never opened a Bible. I never went to church. Uh, that was the church or Christ or anybody like that. It just wasn't in my radar. And so I'm, I'm finding myself um, in the middle of this cell and weeping like a kid you know, and uh, saying to God, and, you know, this is going to sound a little odd, but, you know, I think that when you come to, to the Lord, you need to just be you. And for me, it, it was that. And I remember being very just open with him and saying, you know, God, I, I'm so sorry for stabbing this person, and I'm so sorry for stabbing that person. And, and it just went on and on and on. And, um, you know, I, 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 I say this to to folks when I'm sharing my story is, I have never tasted freedom like I tasted freedom in solitary confinement that moment because it changed my life. And um, then I got some instructions a few uh, days later um, where I needed to make a decision to step down from my leadership there, in which I did. I knew that by doing that— Your um, leadership in the gang? or Yeah. Okay. Um, by doing that, it would cause a green light, meaning a, a hit would be put on your on your life. And so a hit was put on my life, uh, and then for the, the next two years, it was a little rough. We have this this phrase that we use in, in California in the prison system. It's called the hard candy. And that just simply means we're going to beat you close to your death every time we get a chance to. And that, that happened to, uh, to me and to others uh, uh, like me for the next two years. Um, but the guy that came to do the hit, um, it, he was. He became the first guy that I led to Christ in there, and then uh, he joined. Uh, he joined me, 
And so now there's two of us with Hard Candy, you know, and, and then uh, two other guys. Uh, one of the founding members of MS-13 uh, came to Christ through my testimony. And so very shortly, in a very sh- uh, short time, you have a guy from Florence 13, which had big heavy ties to the Mexican mafia. And you had a guy from Watts, a gang leader from there. And so here you are, like, you know, four or five of us, and we're willing to lay down our life for the gospel, and it didn't matter. We knew that God had touched our hearts. And so for you and these others, you mentioned that the the Baptist lady had asked you to join Bible study and you weren't interested. Before you had your conversion experience, did you, you know, open a Bible? Did you have any familiarity, or was this you just sort of— unprompted went to God. And how about for the other men you led to conversion? So for me, it was, um, I had never opened the Bible. I never, you know, just, it wasn't part of my life. Um, But for them, um, I knew that we had these things called, we called them kites, or another word for that would be wila, W-I-L-A. And it was just, it's a short term for a note. And usually a kite or a wila was something that you would pass to another gang member like a trustee or through anybody else. And most likely on that kite, it would be the name of a hit that needed to be done or stuff that needed to be done outside uh, the prison walls or within uh, the CDC. So um, I knew that if I wrote something, you know, my testimony on these notes, and if they took it from me, they would read it. Because, you know, we have another phrase, and these are all like, you know, prison slang, that words that we use. You know, uh, taking out the trash meant you killing somebody and taking them out the yard. And so I knew that they couldn't hang out with somebody that was the trash, you know. So, um, but if they took it from me, I was 100% sure they were, they were going to read it. And that's how I was able to reach every single one of them when I caught them by themselves. I slipped them the note. And uh, that's how I ended up uh, witnessing to the first uh, four. And oh. they became uh, Christians from that point. What did the note say? It was easy. I said, uh, you know, one of the notes, one of the first notes was, um, you know, look at me and why would I give this power away? Why, why would I surrender my, my leadership in this place unless something really happened in that cell? And I didn't know the Bible. Uh, you know, uh, these are just words. But I believe that the Holy Spirit was the one that was behind these words. And it was the simplicity of the gospel written just handwriting. You know, and giving them to these guys that understood where I was coming from. What What are the reasons? What did I have to to gain from stepping down from a high position like that inside the shoe program? So um, uh, when they took it, I knew that that it would affect their life, and and uh, these guys became born again uh, through my testimony there. Wow. So what's what's happened with you since you left prison? Tell us about that. Well, it's been over two decades. Um, I'm, I've been married. I'm about to celebrate um, 20 years with a believing wife. I got three kids, all in private school. I'm a pastor now, and God has blessed my life. I mean, that's such an unusual conversion story, to put it mildly. How how do you think it's shaped your life since, and does it change how you look back at your past? Yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, one of the things that makes you uh, uh, makes you um, it makes you grateful. It makes you you know. Somebody asked me in another interview. Do I feel like I deserve to be out here? My answer will always be no. I know that what I've done, and um, I know that I've sinned before God, but I also know that God gives second chances. 
And I also know that the blood of Christ covers all sin, including what I did. Um, I wish I could rewind time. I wish I would have never done that. I wish I would have never got involved in gangs. Unfortunately, that was my case. Um, and so what do I do with the time and the second chance that God has given me? And the only thing that I can find uh, to do is to educate people, to be a, a voice uh, in, in low-income families, low-income low cities, and to tell them that there is still hope. And you could be in my position right now, and uh, Christ is still there with an outstretched arm ready to save. And, um, and if you call on his name, the Bible tells us that we'll be saved. And, and man, everything that comes after that, you know, I'm just um, I'm grateful. And every morning that I wake up, I got these French doors in my bedroom, and I always wake up at 3 in the morning, and I open those curtains, and it's still dark out there. But that's when I wake up, and I, I, I look outside, and, and I can't believe where God has me and what God has me doing in this time in my life. Um, so, you know, the story wasn't told for over tw- uh, you know, two decades, and it wasn't the right timing. And we look at what's happening here in Washington, D.C., Virginia, Los Angeles, New York, with all the gang activity and, and all that across America. Um, I think that the story needed to wait till this time to come out. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, crime books and true crime stories. But um, I think on our end is we might have make sure that it wasn't, we weren't just being raw for the sake of being raw and real, but we wanted to make sure that people, when, when they finished this book, that they would um, call on to the Lord and, and really do a change in their heart, you know, by accepting him. You mentioned inner cities and gangs being a, a, a growing problem in America. Um, what would you say to parents who are concerned that their kids might get involved in gangs? I think that I can only recommend what worked for me. And for me, the only thing that, or the only person that worked for me was the Lord. So I would say, you know, find yourself a local church, a Bible uh, teaching church, and get your, your family involved. It's never too late. There's youth ministries that are in these, um, these churches that are vital, that will be helpful. There were young pastors, young youth pastors, uh, have a heart for these kids and they'll they'll mentor they'll they'll you know they'll lead them in in a right path, and or get them into sports, you know get them and absolutely if you can by all means getting them out of that neighborhood uh, by all means and then uh, starting over I, I think those are so uh, important um, you know I, I talk about that in the book as well at the end there's some advice for parents and single parents as well so yeah it, it's it's something that's dear to my heart. And you mentioned, of course, that the issue is newly relevant right now. Of course, President Trump has talked a lot about MS-13, which you've mentioned. There's other gangs. What do you think the U.S. should do? Well, I think uh, I'm in full agreement with what he's doing um, and what he intends to do with the border and border security. You definitely, you know, there's so many people in Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, you know, Central America and all that. And I think there's noble people that really want to come here in pursuit of their dream. There's nothing wrong with that, but I think that there's there's a system in place that they need to respect, and that's come in through the turnstiles, come in the right way, uh, let us check you out. And if it all turns out well, then, you know, by all means, pursue your dream here. This is the only place that gives you the opportunity to build a dream in this place um, like no other place. And uh, But in these, like, let's say these caravans that are underway right now, 
I can tell you, and, be, and, and I can tell you from experience that uh, from an 8x10 cell, there is much activity and shots are being called uh, to Mexico, to Guatemala, to El Salvador, and they are being prepared to come in here by all means. And if, they has, if that means disguising themselves in these caravans, they will do that. And so I think that it's important that we listen to what the president is doing right now. And uh, if, if the, that wall needs to be built or the border be shut immediately, then it needs to do that. The safety of America is at hand, you know, and uh, we need to pay attention to that and not be uh, naive to the dangers of gangs and, uh, and predators that want to come here and harm uh, uh, Americans. Okay, so you have a powerful story of, of God's grace, and uh, thank you for coming in and sharing. Thank you guys so much for uh, having me uh, on your show. Thanks for coming on, and of course, your book is called The Shot Caller, if anyone wants to check it out. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a five-star rating on iTunes. We'll see you again tomorrow. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.